So you know I was a preacher's kid, right? I lost count of the number of times that as a preacher's kid, I sat right along back yonder on the back row. Me and my buddy would be talking. And my dad would be preaching. And everything was fine. Until suddenly I realized there was silence. And that's when I knew that I was in trouble. Well, when I was talking in the foyer earlier and there was silence coming from this room, that's when I knew I was in trouble. I'm really, really sorry about that, but at the same time, I'm so excited to be able to experience a wonderful baptism with those three wonderful girls, and I'm excited about their faith in Christ, and I'm excited to be able to share that with you this morning. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn to Mark's Gospel, the 15th chapter. We are fastly coming to a close of our study of Mark's Gospel, but before we get there, uh, which the Lord, the Lord wills, over the next few weeks, we will find our conclusion there. We come to a passage this morning about which Jesus has predicted a number of times would take place. An occasion when we find that, that he is experiencing that which he had said would happen and was the fulfillment of the purpose for which he came. And that is him giving his life as a ransom for sinners. You'll recall that in our study earlier, we found ourselves in the, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane back in, in chapter 14. And in that passage, if you remember, Jesus was staring into the cup that, that he, he, was, he knew that he would have to drink. And he prayed this prayer in Mark 14, verses 35 and 36. He said, it says, Abba, Father, all things are possible from you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, what, not what I will, but what you will. And what I, in light of our sermon from this past Sunday, when we looked at the awful torture and brutality that Jesus suffered on the cross, when we looked at all of the, the, the mocking and, and the, the taunting that he endured while he hung there and, and in the moments preceding his being nailed to the cross, I would not want you to misunderstand and think that it was the physical torture or the mocking ridicule that Jesus endured, that those were the things that caused him to stagger when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was not the beating. It was not the scourging. It was not being nailed to a cross or the excruciating suffering that he knew that he would endure that caused Jesus, caused his breath to be taken away from him in that garden. Rather, as James Edwards has written, it was the specter of identifying with sinners so fully to become the object of God's wrath against sin. It is this that overwhelms Jesus' soul to the point of death. In other words, when Jesus stared into that cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, what he saw was what it meant for him to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When he stared into that cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, what he saw was what we're about to read this morning. Begin reading with me there in verse 33 of Mark chapter 15. The Bible says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, 
He's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love. And thank you for this opportunity that we have to open your scriptures and to study them. I pray that you would give us full wisdom and understanding. That we might apply them to our lives. And may you be exalted in the time that we spend together. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As I did last week, so I want to do this week. I want to just give you some words that will sort of serve as hooks or, or headings, you might say, for us to just be able to, to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through this passage and, and, and organize our thoughts together. And the first word that I want you to see from our text this morning just simply is this. It's the word darkness. Darkness. Mark tells us that at the sixth hour of the day, darkness came over the whole land. And according to the way that the Jews reckoned time, they, they reckoned the first hour of the day to be at 6 a.m. in the morning. And so if we, if we use that way of reckoning time, then we understand that at the sixth hour of the day would be at noon. It would be at 12 p.m. It would be when the sun should be at its zenith in the sky. And yet, Mark tells us that it was at that time that the whole land went dark. Mark goes on to say that the darkness lasted until the ninth hour, which would have been about 3 p.m. And the fact that the darkness lasted that long tells us that that what they experienced here was not just, just a solar eclipse. I don't know if you remember, it was just about a year ago right now that we were talking about, we were looking forward to that eclipse that was going to come and cut across the United States from the, from the northwest down to the southeast. And many of us were able to experience at least a part of that. But if you'll recall, that solar eclipse only lasted for a few seconds, maybe even as much as a, as a minute at, at the, at the, in the darkest places. This, this was no solar eclipse. This was a darkness that lasted for three hours, which tells us that, that it was supernatural. It was something that God did. It was nothing less than a cosmic sign. In the Old Testament, darkness during the daytime was, was always a sign. In fact, you might recall that the penultimate plague that God sent upon the Egyptians because Pharaoh would not allow his Israelites to be set free was the plague of darkness. He sent darkness all over the, the land of Egypt. And according to Exodus 10, verses 21 and following, God sent that darkness over the land, and that darkness was so thick that, that Moses says that it could even be felt. Darkness, darkness was not only a, a sign of a curse, but it was also the sign that the prophet Amos said would accompany the day of the Lord when his judgment would fall. Amos writes in, in chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, he says, and all your songs into lamentations, and I will make it like mourning for an only son. So darkness is a sign that accompanied the judgment of God. It is a sign that, 
that was a sign of mourning and of grief. And we can even say that darkness represented God's curse. And therefore, we come to understand that the darkness that, that hung over the land when Jesus hung on the cross signified God's curse of judgment upon Jesus. As the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, he is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, smitten by God and afflicted. But listen, Isaiah wants us to understand that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And in light of that, I want you to think about what was happening to Jesus when, when the sun refused to shine on Him that day. All of our sin was being poured out on Him. Ray Pritchard presents this, this awful, terrible picture, but yet I think it's, it's something that's, that, that's good to help us remember and understand what was taking place. He says, imagine that somewhere in the universe there is a cesspool containing all of the sins that have ever been committed. And that cesspool is deep and it's dark and it's indescribably, indescribably foul. And all the evil deeds that men and women have ever done are floating there. And imagine that a river of filth is constantly flowing into that cesspool replenishing the vile mixture with all the evil done every day. And he says, now imagine that while Jesus was on the cross, that cesspool was emptied onto him. See the, the flow of the filth as it settles upon him. And that flow never seems to stop. It's vile and it's toxic and it's deadly and it's filled with disease and pain and suffering. If you can just imagine it, just wave after nauseating wave of the world's lusts and broken promises and, and murders and hatred and theft and adulteries and pornography and drunkenness and, and bitterness and greed and gluttony and drug abuse and crime and cursing. Every vile, wicked deed that has ever been done, every vain imagination, all of it for three dark hours pouring upon the Son of God as He hung there on that cross and convulsed underneath that weight. That, I believe, is a representation of the contents of the cup that Jesus stared into in the garden of Gethsemane. So that's the first word, it's darkness. Notice the next word on your outline, it's forsakenness. Forsakenness. Mark says in verse 34 that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in this loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Significantly, these are the words that open Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was the psalm that I quoted for you multiple times last week. That if you go back and read Psalm 22, which was written roughly a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ, it is as if Jesus himself were dictating to David what he should write that took place on the cross. And the first words of that psalm are these. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Every commentary and every sermon that I was able to read regarding our Lord's cry here marvels at the mystery of the words. Martin Luther is said to have considered Jesus' cry from verse 34 and uttered, God forsaken by God. Who can understand that? J.C. Ryle put it this way. He says, there is a deep mystery in these words which no mortal can fathom. They were meant to express the real pressure on his soul of the enormous burden of a world's sin. They were meant to show how truly and how literally he was our substitute, that he was made sin and a curse for us and endured God's righteous anger against the world's sin in his own person. At that awful moment, the iniquity of us all was laid upon him entirely and the Lord chose to crush him and cause him to suffer. Tim Keller, he captures the essence of Jesus' cry this way. He says that, that when, when Jesus was, was, was dying there on the cross and he uttered those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says it wasn't a rhetorical question. He said rather, he says he was forsaken for you and for me and for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be forsaken. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell instead upon Jesus. And that is why Danny Aiken writes that Jesus cries out, my God, instead of my Father in this passage. It is because he writes, in this one moment and all of time and eternity, Jesus views himself and knows himself not as the Father's Son, but as the sinner's sacrifice. Now, as mysterious and complex as Jesus' cry from the cross actually is for us, it was well misunderstood by those who were around the cross because when they heard him, they heard the words Eloi, Eloi, which were my God, my God in Aramaic. But perhaps coming from the, the voice of a man who was dying, they heard the word Eli, Eli, and they thought it was Elijah that he was crying out for. And so one of them grabbed a sponge, stuck it on a stick, filled it full of sour wine, which was a common thing for those in that time to drink, and shoved it up to Jesus' lips for him to have some because they hoped it would rejuvenate him long enough to see maybe Elijah, let's see if Elijah will come and bring him down from the cross. But Elijah did not come. Neither did any angels. Neither did God himself. In verse 37... After Jesus had cried out again with a loud voice, he breathed his last, Mark says. And Jesus Christ, the great king of glory, died alone as the sinner's substitute. Now, we ought to pause for just a moment and think about what has just occurred. Because when we consider all that Mark has told us concerning the judgment that was poured out upon Jesus, and... and his being forsaken by the Father, we cannot help but conclude that sin is not a joking matter. So often in our vernacular, we just talk about, ah, oh, you know, the devil made me do it. It's just, ah, oh, it's just a little, it's just a little picadillo. It's just a little something. Don't worry, it's not that. Brothers and sisters, understand this. We must never minimize the horror of sin. My sin, your sin, was part of the reason that Jesus became a curse. It was our sin that caused the Father to turn His face away from His only begotten Son and pour out His full unmitigated wrath upon Him. 
We must never make light of sin. Not only that, we must never minimize the cost of our salvation. Without the awful pain of the cross, you and I have no hope. We have no reason for optimism. Without the cross, you would forever stand condemned by the cesspool of your own sin. It cost Jesus everything to redeem us. And we must never take that for granted or minimize the cost. The simple message of the cross is this. Jesus died so that you might live. You must never forget that or minimize that message. That brings me to the next word that I want you to consider this morning from our text. It's the word access. Access. In verse 38, Mark records something important that happened at the point that Jesus died. He says in verse 38, Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Back in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 31 and following, Moses describes that veil. He describes that curtain that was to be hung. He says, You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. And then he says this, You shall hang the veil from clasps, and the veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. Don't miss that last line because it gives you the purpose for why the curtain was created to begin with. It was a means of dividing people from God, of separating people, specifically separating the high priest who represented the people from the Holy of Holies, the place where God was considered to have dwelt. And then the high priest could only go behind that curtain to the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement. But Mark tells us when Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit that the temple veil was torn from two, in two from top to bottom. And as Kent Hughes has written, the veil into the Holy of Holies was supernaturally slashed in two as if a great sword had fallen. And suddenly the place where only the high priest could go and then only once a year was now wide open for all who are in Christ. Hughes goes on to say, by Jesus' blood, we no longer must stand outside, but can advance into the presence of God. That's exactly how the writer of Hebrews interpreted it. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, he did so bearing a sacrifice of, of a dead animal of some sort. But when Jesus entered the Holy Holy, he brought only himself. And his blood makes clear that now there is no more need for any more sacrifices. The destruction of the temple and the invalidation of the sacrificial system on one hand was what was rendered by that torn veil. But on the other hand, it was opening the way of God to all people. So we've seen the word darkness. We've seen the word forsaken. We've seen the word access. The last word that I would have us consider this morning is this. It's the word confession. I want you to notice the final cry of Jesus was in a loud voice, Mark tells us, and then... That followed with the tearing of the veil. And then it describes something else in verse 39 that was truly worth our attention. It says, so when the centurion who stood opposite Jesus saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man 
was the Son of God. What an interesting thing for him to say. There was something, why is that so significant? Why does, why does Mark make sure we understand that? Well, something grabbed this centurion's attention. And we need to first of all recognize that he was a centurion. He was a Roman soldier. He was one who was given charge of a hundred soldiers. And evidently his responsibility was to ensure that crucifixions were carried out in the proper manner. Now this particular day he had the crucifixion of Jesus which was under his purview. But that doesn't mean that was his first time ever experiencing that. As a matter of fact we would probably experience, imagine that he had experienced hundreds if not thousands of crucifixions before that moment. And yet there was something about this one. Something about this one that, that seemed to get his attention. This was, a, this was a hard man. This was a man who was not easily moved by death. This was not a man who the suffering of someone else would have, would have bent his heartstrings very much. He had seen death. He had seen suffering. He had seen all kinds of, of things like that to the degree that that was not going to move him. And yet something that Jesus did touched him. It's interesting to me that when, when Jesus cried out, Mark tells us that he cried out with a loud voice. That would have been different. Because you see, as we noted last week, crucifixion was something that was designed to be an ongoing, long-term death. It was something where the person who was crucified was supposed to experience the most suffering that could be humanly administered at that time. And so what was, experienced, what was anticipated was is that a person's strength and stamina would continue to decline as they hung on the cross. And yet, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. Mark doesn't tell us the words that he used. But John tells us, John tells us that Jesus cried out, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. You see, for this centurion who had watched and heard everything that had occurred on this Friday, he saw a man who rather than, than falling unconscious and, and dying feebly, instead remained conscious to the very end. And in that, this soldier recognized that something that the others who were witnessing Jesus' death did not. He recognized that Jesus gave his life. It was not taken from him. He gave his life. Such the recognition caused the centurion to declare, truly this man was the Son of God. Now what exactly the centurion understood about that, that declaration, we cannot be for sure, but we do know this. He was declaring the divinity of Christ. And other than that happening at Jesus' baptism when God the Father announced it, other than it happening a few more times when the demons that Jesus exercised actually said that about Jesus, this is the first time in Mark's gospel and the very first time from the lips of a human being in Mark's gospel that someone says, this is the Son of God. And I want you to consider the irony of that. Jeff Thomas writes that this confession that Jesus is God's Son doesn't occur after a disciple saw a dead person being raised or a man born blind receiving his sight because of some word that Jesus spoke. Rather, it came when Christ was dead. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, the centurion's declaration tells us that Jesus is the promised Messiah and unique Son of God is seen most clearly in his passion and in his death. And I believe that that recognition points us to both the source of hope for sinners and also a commission for the church. You see, 
This soldier never saw the miracles that Jesus performed. He never heard the sermons that Jesus preached. But he did see Jesus' response to the mockery and he saw his response to the sufferings. This soldier was under so much pressure to reject Jesus for who he was, and yet he confessed that Jesus was God's son. And that conviction arose simply by hearing the words of Jesus and seeing how he died. You see what that means for us? That means that anyone in the whole world may believe that Christ is the son of God by hearing about the cross of Jesus Christ. The Savior's holy, royal death converted the very executioner himself. And that's hope for sinners like you and for me. But I believe it also gives us a commission. Derek Thomas writes this, that Christians can win the world not by declaring a holy war, not by using the advertiser's techniques, not by spin and soundbite, not by entertainment and dumbing down, but by declaring the crucifixion of the Son of God. In the obscurity and lowliness and humiliation and weakness of the crucified Christ, God's power over the hatred and torture of men is seen. God allowed them to do all of this to his own son. He did not spare his own son from any of it. His son accepted it all, stayed on the cross because he was loving us. And this was the only way that we as sinners can ever be saved. That then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The God-forsaken death of Jesus opens access to God for all sinners who come to faith in Him. Get that. The God-forsaken death of Jesus opens access to God for all sinners who come to faith in Him. I want you to know, I told the first service this, I'll tell you that I'm not the most eloquent preacher that you've ever heard. I don't preach to the largest crowds that will ever be assembled. But I want you to know I proclaim the best news that there could possibly be proclaimed. It is simply this. Jesus Christ was abandoned so that you might not ever be abandoned. Jesus Christ was deserted that you might never be deserted. Jesus Christ was forgotten so that you would never be forgotten. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that you would never have to be forsaken. If you have never trusted in Christ to save you from the guilt and the penalty of your sin, the Bible is clear that when you die, you will go to hell. But I want you to know, if you go there, you will go there not, you will go there in spite of what Jesus Christ has done for you. He endured the darkness and the forsakenness of the cross that you might gain access to God through your confession of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. As the lyrics of the song that we sing state, this is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. He took the blame. He bore the shame. We stand forgiven at the cross. Is that your testimony this morning? Have you come to the cross and bowed before the one who died in your place and bore your shame and punishment for sin? If not, then why? Why would you not run to him today? Why would you spend one more hour under the condemnation of your own sin when Jesus Christ offers you forgiveness and pardon? Why? If your testimony is that you have been saved and that you have been freed from the burden of your sin, 
then why would you continue to entertain and engage in sinful practices and in behaviors that bring shame upon Jesus? When we consider the awful price that Jesus paid to forgive us of our sins, past, present, and future, it is the height of arrogance and surely an utter failure to truly appreciate all that he went through to continue to allow sin to control our lives. So with those thoughts, I conclude this morning by reminding you of what I argued for at the beginning, which is that the cup that made Jesus shudder in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the thought that he had to drink that, the, the thought of the cross upon which he died was most dreadful, not because of the atrocities that were committed against his physical body, but rather that Jesus experienced the horrors of hell as he received the due penalty for our sins. Such is the greatest of all good news for you and me because the God-forsaken death of Jesus opens access to God for all sinners who will come to him and place their faith in him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.